Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Super excited to be back with you. It's, uh, as you heard Pastor Joe say, off to, they're off to Israel in the coming week and uh, throughout the summer. I get to be with you a little bit more. I'll be taking on some extra Sundays in uh, August, so next Sunday won't uh, be me because I will be preaching in Florida, and so uh, there's a young man that uh, is uh, on staff with me at my church. I'm trying to train up the next generation, fresh out of seminary. He's about to be ordained, and so what you've got is like, you know how the Mets will bring up a, a, a rookie pitcher out of AAA? So he needs a lot of encouragement, uh, but he's filled the pulpit at my church about six times now, half a dozen times. And uh, I'm really, really excited about what God's doing in this young man's life. And um, as if all that's not enough, he's from Long Island, you know? He's, I got a Long Island boy, yeah. So I'm sending you Andrew Bertadotti. I'm like, Andy, these are your people, baby. These are your people. You're going to crush it. Uh, Kid went to, I won't be, obviously I'll be in Florida, so just to set him up, uh, I, I told him, I said, you're going to love it. And I, I was able to say to him, listen, when you go to City on a Hill, I mean, you talk about like, it's like a Big Hero 6 embrace of warmth and goodness. I was like, they're going to love on you and encourage you, and uh, uh, it's not just a one-way street. He's going to bless you with God's Word. The kid knows the Word of God. He grew up on Long Island, a sort of nominal kind of Catholic nothing, and uh, when went to, uh, religiously, and then went to SUNY Binghamton. If you know anything about SUNY Binghamton, the reputation is like, eh, kind of the granola hipster, Berkeley, you know, just everybody's out eating tree bark and judging you, you know, whatever. <laughs> so anyway, you go to SUNY Binghamton to lose your faith. He went to SUNY, he went to SUNY Binghamton and got saved, radically saved at SUNY Binghamton. Yeah, in the midst of all that. And his story, which he'll share, uh, I mean, just so cool what God's done in his life. And then I get to be back with you then on the 26th and some, and some Sundays in August. And so I wanted to start a new series that will kind of kick off these uh, upcoming Sundays that I get to be with you. And I'm really excited about it. And as you can see from the slide up here, I'm calling it The Quest. And it is a series on an Old Testament book of Scripture the book of, it's faintly written up there, the book of Ecclesiastes. Going through Ecclesiastes. Now, some of you, it's kind of audible, you can even hear it when I say that. There's actually people that have come to me as, as word got out, I was going to preach at Ecclesiastes in my own church in uh, Queens, and they said, oh man, I, I've been waiting for this. This is like my favorite book. I've been shocked by that. People are like really into Ecclesiastes. And I wonder if maybe it's because it really speaks to the modern mindset, really speaks to modern people, but especially young people. So if you have teenagers, if you have youngsters, and you know, it's been kind of hard to get them out of bed on a summer morning, Ecclesiastes may be the series for them. It's going to be a series for all of us. And I'm calling it The Quest. Ecclesiastes, uh, let, let's jump right in. Let's talk about it. Ecclesiastes, just to give you a little background is part of a Bible genre called wisdom literature. Now, you may know, if you're you're new to the Bible, check it out. The Bible's not one book, it's 66 books bound together that tell one overarching story of the redemption of God, okay? And within those 66 books, you have different types of books, different genres. For example, you have books of the law. They call it the Torah, or if you really want to impress your friends, call it the Pentateuch sometime, and they'll uh, 
uh, wonder if you coughed or if you, but uh, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You got stuff in there like the Ten Commandments, like the patriarchs and Abraham and Moses. All those dudes are in the, the, the Torah, the, the books of law. Those are all books of law. Then you have books of history, First Kings and Second Kings. Uh, Pastor Joe talked about First and Second Samuel this morning. And th- that's all there, the history of the kings and some genealogies and what happened. You've got gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four stories, four books that tell the story of Jesus Christ. And then you've got these five books called wisdom literature. And they're every bit as cool as they sound, especially when you say it like this, wisdom literature, kind of ancient wisdom. You know, you imagine it written by Jedis long ago, right? It's, uh, it's actually inspired by God. Through, in these books, you have, first of all, Proverbs. It's probably the most classic example of wisdom literature. Proverbs, if you're not familiar, are these bite-sized chunks of wisdom on how to live your life right. I call Proverbs Old Testament Twitter. Because in like 140 characters or less, you get this you know, amazing nugget of wisdom and they move on about how to get your life right, how, how the world just works. And if you want to be successful in the world, you want to live by Proverbs. For many people, it's your favorite book. There's in fact, a little tip, there's 31 Proverbs. Some people read a chapter of Proverbs a day based on what day it is. So like today is the 12th, so you read Proverbs 12, you know, and, you know whatever. Uh, leap years, you get a little, anyway, it, uh, it works out. Actually, leap, whatever. Um, then there, that's Proverbs. Then Psalms, right? Psalms is the largest book in the Bible. This is the, the Bible's prayer book, the, the song book, the hymnal of, uh, of the ages. And what's so great about Psalms, so many people love, is that no matter what you're feeling, you will find you're not alone. Someone has felt that. So when your heart is bubbling with joy and you just like, I wish everything would praise him. I wish like, I'm so filled with joy. I'm so filled with God's love. I wish like the trees would praise him and the snow would praise him and the crashing cymbal and the ride cymbal and the clanging cymbal and the tambourine and the harp and the ride. You've just quoted like Psalm 148 and 150, you know? Like it's there. That, and then there are times when you're so heartbroken and you can't figure out what God is doing. And you will find in the Psalms, there are Psalms of lament. They just look up at God and go, why? And you realize there's a vocabulary for your prayer. Some people love them because one of the guys who wrote the most of them, the guy Pastor Joe was talking about earlier, King David, he, we love him so much because King David is like, the, the, he's got this like schizophrenic faith, right? In one Psalm, he's like, God, I love you, and I'll tell you why, because you're my rock, and you are always there when I call to you. Two Psalms later, where are you when I call to you? You're nowhere to be found, right? And the reason we love that is whose faith does that look like? Looks like mine, right? Looks like yours. And you realize that in the scope of human emotions, the psalm gives vocabulary, it gives words to your prayers. If you want to read uh, psalms the same way, there's 150 psalms. If you take 30 days in a month, then you realize that take whatever day it is, multiply by five, read the next four psalms, and you can do that. Every, I, there was a lot of math. Just read, read psalms. Psalms is good. <laughs> song of Solomon. It's the third book in the wisdom literature. Now, Song of Solomon is a celebration of the intimacy between a husband and a wife. It's a celebration of a husband and wife's marital union. Uh, in fact, uh, you may be interested to note, if there's young people in here today, uh, true story, Hebrew youngsters were not allowed to read the book of Song of Solomon until they were older because some of it is, you know, it's, it's graphic. It's, it's it, 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 you know... Uh, and I know some of you, if you were like me when I was your age and you're in here and you're a youngster, you're thinking... Forbidden book of the Bible? <laughs> and I would just like to tell you that there, there are several. In fact, one of the most forbidden that you should never read is John. Don't, I bet you won't read John. Bet you won't, bet you won't do that, probably. Uh, 
it actually uh, provides a hint to what's coming, the ultimate bride and the ultimate groom, Jesus Christ and the bride of Christ, the church. And so it points to that. Part of why Song of Solomon is so helpful today and beautiful today is because, unfortunately, uh, our culture sort of lost its way on this whole thing, and we tend to think that sex and sexuality is just evil and bad and wrong uh, because all we've seen is the twisted, perverted version of it. But in God's context, we remember this is actually a good gift of a loving God. And that's part of why Christians talk about the sexual ethics so much, especially among uh, teenagers when we talk about true love weights and abstinence before marriage and all that stuff. It's not because we're, you know, old fuddy-duddies, you know, puritanical about it. It's because uh, we want God's absolute best for them and nothing less, see? And therefore, sex must be within the way God designed it, the parameters of marriage between one man and one woman. That's all. We want his best. That leaves two books. Two more books. And in a way, these last two books make the same point from opposite ends of the spectrum. You ready? The first is the book of Job. If you're new to the Bible, you'll find it in the table of contents under Job. In this book, you read about a guy who lost everything. Do you remember this story? It doesn't start with Job. It actually starts in the halls of heaven. And this little runt, pawn, punk called Satan, I use the words runt, pawn, uh, you know, for a reason, because some people think that somehow Satan is opposite God. Stop. Satan is a created being who made bad choices and fell. God has no equal. God has no opposite. He is a, he's a runt pawn, ultimately a puppet, who in the end, his worst schemes come back on him and turns out we're all a part of God's plan. So he's really just a, just a tool. But anywho, uh, this runt pawn Satan comes to God and says, Hey God, you know all these humans you created? You know they're all bums, right? Every last one of them. You know they're bums. They don't love you. They don't care about you. They don't worship you. They're all bums. What does God say? Have you considered my servant Job? To which you know, if Job had known that conversation were going on, Job would have been like, I don't consider me. I'm, I'm good, really. Just move along. Nothing to see here. Instead, uh, he says, Satan replies, well, yeah, I, I mean, it's obvious that Job would love you. He, he doesn't really love you for your stuff. I mean, he doesn't really love you for you. He loves you for your stuff. See, he just loves you because you've blessed him so much. I mean, take away the stuff, then we'll see, right? You've put a hedge of protection around him. Nobody can touch Job. Well, no wonder he loves you, right? So God says, okay, you have my permission. You can do this and no further. Isn't that fun to know that even when Satan is messing with a human, it's still under the parameters of God's control? But anyway, he says, okay, you can do this and no more. So Satan goes to work. And listen, you've had bad days, but you never had a day like Job. You remember this story? As he's there, a messenger comes in, all the oxen gone in one stroke. And while that messenger's still giving him the bad news, Job's going, that is a massive financial loss. While, hey, Job, bad news, all the sheep gone in one shot. And while that guy's still talking, Job, terrible, all the camels taken off by raiders, right? I mean, what? My camels? While that's happening, your sons and daughters, no, don't say it, your sons and daughters, no, right? Sons and daughters, all this in one day. As if all that's not bad enough, God then allows Satan to touch Job and, and gives him these boils and everything, right? To, to which he is at the pits of suffering where he's, you know, still in all this, refusing to curse God. He's still, and his wife looks at him, even his own wife looks at him and says what? You should curse God and die. To which Job says, give me back the camels. Take her. <laughs> not really. I don't think he's it. But it's a book about suffering. People don't actually have a problem with suffering. What we have a problem with is undeserved suffering. It's when you've been doing your part, you've been living a good life, 
And then for no reason at all, you get that diagnosis. Right? Or you're, I, don't, I don't see where this is coming from. I don't see the reason. That's the suffering we have a problem with. Nobody gets mad at God if we hit our hand with a hammer. That was very clear, cause and effect. It's suffering that comes out of nowhere. It doesn't have a reason. That's the problem. We have a problem with undeserved suffering. And when we go through that suffering, what we think is, oh man, if I just had this, I'd be good. If I just had that, it becomes the if-onlys, right? Even if you're not you know, suffering in the way Job did in these cataclysmic ways, you, as you go through your life, I do the same thing. We think, well, if only I had some money, if only I had a little more money in the bank, then I would have a cushion. If only I, you know what, if I had more power, if I had better friends, or if I had more friends, uh, my problem is my religion. If I went to a better church, if I had more religion, if my parents hadn't been so awful, right? The problem's my childhood, and if my parents hadn't been so mean, if I could have grown up in a better place, if I could have a better house, if my teenagers would listen to me, if my locker would open, right? Whatever it is, if only, if only, and we design this perfect little world, and we think, if only I could get out of my suffering, and if I could recreate the circumstances to the way I want them, if I could design my perfect world, then I'd be good. Then my life would have meaning. And the problem with all that is Ecclesiastes. The book of Job is about a man who lost everything. And at the end of losing everything goes, if there ain't no God, then all of this is utter meaninglessness. The book of Ecclesiastes is about a guy who had everything and comes to the exact same conclusion. The book of Ecclesiastes got whatever it is you're trying to create and put in your life. He got it. And he's saying apart from God, it leads to the same conclusion. Without God, whether you are, whether everything is taken from you or whether you're given everything that you think you're looking for, without God, it ends in utter meaningless. Job and Solomon, who had, Job who lost everything, Solomon who got everything, end up at the same place. Without God, meaninglessness, utter meaningless. He had everything, right? Uh, uh, what do you want if I had more money? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the king. I'm the richest guy there is, right? And I'm telling you, apart from God, it's meaninglessness. Well, but if I'd had better parents. Yeah, my dad was the king. Uh, he was King David. You don't get better, right? Uh, well, what about, you know, if I, if I had a better religion? I'm not sure what you're not hearing here. I am in the heart of God's chosen people. Well, if I'd had, well... If I could party more, if I could just have more fun, yeah. I got 10,000 people drunk for a decade. So that little barbecue you threw, child's play. Uh, but if I could build something, if I could make something in my life and build something, yeah, I, 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 so I, I built a national forest. Uh, I mean, I love what you've done with, like, the geraniums. Um, <laughs> Right? You have a 10-bedroom home? Awesome. I call that bathroom. See, because whatever you've done, I've done, that's, the, that's what Solomon's going to, and he's going to hammer at that for 12, and here's what he's going to say. Meaningless. Van, uh, the, uh, so let's get to it. it. Just turn with me to chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll just do that. We'll just read the first chapter. It, I, I will warn you. The, it is hard to improve on the poetry of the King James Version. So what you're used to hearing, if you know anything about Solomon, uh, if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, you're used to hearing um, uh, vanity of vanities. It's all vanity, and everything is a chasing after the wind. It's hard to improve on that. Unfortunately, I have a more modern translation, and so we're going to read that. We're going to read from that, and so you'll hear futile instead of vanity, but don't worry. You'll pick up on the exact same thing. 
Before, uh, the only verse I'll explain is, uh, is these first two, then we'll just read it. Here we go. The words of the, whoops, I forgot my clicker. Here it is. Sorry about that. There we go. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So like I said, the only one I want to explain, this, this first verse here, <clears throat> who, what does this mean, teacher? Uh, the Hebrew word here is kohelet, and you know, it's hard for, it's hard for people to know exactly how to translate it. Teacher's pretty good. Uh, some people preacher, I like that less good, and I'll, I'll get to why in just a minute. Really, the word means convener, the one who draws together to talk through this stuff. Uh, I think a great translation would be professor. I mean, really, he's the philosophy professor, right? I mean, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get people together and get you to question your philosophy of life. So the philosophy professor, uh, uh, Eugene Peterson, um, he calls it, uh, he translated in his paraphrase, the quester. I like that too, the idea this guy's on a quest to find out what's the meaning of life, and so the, the Kohelet, the, the teacher, that, that, that'll do. But you get the idea, there's more to it than just teacher. He's not just giving answers, he's a philosophy professor. He's kind of, um, you know, driving, driving us to questions. In fact, that's going to be really important, we'll come back to that. A good philosophy professor, you know, your humanities professor in college, she wasn't just, I mean, the best professors you ever had, they weren't just laying out answers, they were getting you to think critically, getting you to question and to kind of poke and to prod whatever answer you would give. Sometimes they would shoot it down, but not out of meanness. They were trying to get you to think deeply and not be satisfied with just pat answers or nonsense. And that's what, that's what this guy's doing, doing here. So anyway, Kohelet, philosophy professor, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Most people think that this means just Solomon. That's why I've been calling him Solomon. He was the son of David. He was king in Jerusalem. And so uh, with that, here's what he says. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Well, maybe I misheard him. Absolute futility. But I mean, surely he doesn't mean like every, everything is futile. What does a man gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? Generation goes, generation comes, the earth remains forever, the sun rises and the sun sets, panting it returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, Turning to the north, turning, turning, goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. The streams are flowing to the place, and they'll flow there again. All things are wearisome. Man's unable to speak. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can, can one say about anything, oh, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of those who came before. And of those who will come after, there'll be no remembrance by those who follow them. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to seek and explore through wisdom all that's done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. <clears throat> What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I've amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. My mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. And I learned that this, too, is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. And this is our Bible reading for today.
the uh, Hebrew right after that is womp, womp. Uh, Solomon needs a hug. This seems so strange to us when we read all that because we're, here's why, here's why. We're used to coming to the Bible and we're used to seeing a book that fundamentally provides answers. We're used to seeing what is fundamentally preaching, right? When you preach, you're really providing answers, the gospel, the truth. And all throughout the Bible, you see the, the answers, right? Live this way. This is what Christ did. Here's the truth, all that stuff, right? The book of Ecclesiastes is shocking to us because it's, it's not, fundamentally, it's not a book of answers. The rest of the Bible is the answers. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book of questions. It's a book of getting you to question. Tim Keller says, and I agree with him, that you know that you have 66 books bound up here in the Bible. He says, if you, could, if you, if you wanted to be theologically a, 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 a little easier to understand, you should take Ecclesiastes, lift it out of where it is bound, and bind it instead in the very front of the Bible. See? Because it provides the preface. Hey, is there a God? I mean, is anything meaning? Is there any meaning? If so, where can meaning be found? In what ways can, can meaning be found without God? Do you really need God to be a good person and to have meaning in life? These are great questions. These are fundamental. These are the exact questions you asked in your philosophy class. What is the point of everything? Is it meaningless? Does anything matter? And then when you're done with that, you open the rest of the Bible and you start with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on from there for 65 more books. See? So not a book of questions. It's a book of answers. What this guy's job is, is to goad you, to push you, to ponder and think through the logical conclusions of the positions you are taking in your life. And so he's saying, seek, go on a quest. This question, I would say, is the controlling question of the book. You you could pick several, but this is the one I picked. I think it, it best summarizes the goal of the book. And it goes like this. What does a man gain? This is back in verse three. What does a man gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? Now, isn't that true? Haven't you, without even knowing the Bible, don't you agree with that? For those of you who know the Bible, I'm sure you've studied this and thought through it, but I'm saying you don't even have to. Look, what, what does a man gain for all his efforts? The word gain there, is a, it comes from a commercial term. It's the same thing as profit. What does a man profit? I don't know, I'm not a businessman. I don't have a lot of business savvy, but I know the definition of profit, I think. It's revenues. You ready? But that's not all your profit. I mean, you could have a lot of gross revenue, but it's revenue minus expenses equals profit. Anyone who's in business, is that halfway close? I mean, is that fair? Yeah, revenues minus expenses. So a lot of people look at their life and say, I got a lot of gross revenues. I got a lot of good things. But what did it cost to get you there? Oh, well, it costs quite a bit. Okay, well, then whatever's left over is your profit. Look at what you're pouring in to get that promotion. Look at what you're pouring in to get that better job. Look at what you've literally poured in to lay a foundation for your massive house. That's going to be great. That's gross revenue. What did it cost to get you there? And when all that is said and done, when the dust settles on all your efforts, some of you are working so hard. When was the last time somebody came up to you? Hey, how you doing? Man, I am delightful. I have so much free time. When's the last time that happened for any of you, right? You're working so hard. If, you, if not in church, where else can you have somebody kind of get up in your face a little bit and go, hey, Ecclesiastes 1-3 with me for a minute. Let's stop. Let's just pause for a second on our life. Where are we going? What do we, what do we get? At the end of all this, what do we get? If you can't do that in church, where are you supposed to do it? So let's do it. I mean, some of you know this verse because it hits you. 
Some of you know this verse because there, there was a cataclysmic event in your life, and this verse came to life for you. You got a report about your loved one, and they came to you and said, it's, it's malignant, it's stage four, sit down, talk, and Ecclesiastes 1.3. You may not have even known the verse, and you thought, what is life all about? But of mine in high school, that was his story. And when he came through leukemia, at the end, he said, you need to live every day like it's your last. And I mean, life filled with meaning. He knew this verse, right, right? It hit in a cataclysmic way. Others of you, it doesn't take a cataclysmic way. Others of you, you know this verse. I know you know it. Laundry. Remember how much laundry you've done? And as you're doing it, everybody who's done it, I've never done it, but I'm told told by those who have that every time you do it at some point this thought Ecclesiastes 1.3 crosses your mind what do I really gain because the more laundry you do you know what it generates right more laundry yeah Ecclesiastes 1.3 I learned this as a boy mom would say make your bed This bed? Yeah. The one I'm going to sleep in later tonight. If I'm making it to go in a museum of bed furniture, I totally understand the profit motive here, the gain. It's clear. But if I'm going to sleep in it again, night after night, what gain? What does it profit a man, mom, if he... Right? So if any of you thought like I did as a boy, uh, I'll just go ahead and tell you, there's tremendous profit in making the bed. You avoid a spanking and grounding. And, uh, there are very forceful answers to this question in mom's, mom's mind. Uh, you get my point? Well, all right, that's, that's just for people who never stop and think. We, I mean, we're, we're Christian people. We've stopped and thought about this. That's, you know, obviously, what if you really think deeply about it? Then you get happier, right? The more you really think about the way the world is and where the world is going, it makes you happier, right? People who really study the news, aren't they just cheerful? No. <laughs> For with much wisdom is what? Much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases, right? Eventually, you turn the, the news off. Why? Haven't you done this? Everybody in here has had some point where they say, I'm going on the news fast. Why? Because ignorance is bliss. Wake me up when the Kardashians do something else or whatever, right? <laughs> ignorance is bliss. I don't want to know anymore. Why? Because you and I both know the more you study and the more you think about the human condition, the more grief increases. So what do you profit? What do you profit if your friend comes to you and says, Tuesday, Tuesday from uh, 3 p.m. until 6 p.m. This Tuesday, I need you to go, this is Middle Country Road, right? I need you to go to Middle Country Road and 112. You know down there, Quorum, right down there? I need you to stand on the corner. I want you to pick the, the northeast corner. Stand right there, northeast corner, Middle Country Road, Highway 112, from 3 p.m. until 6 p.m. this Tuesday. It's very important. Got it? Okay, peace, right? Well, I suppose depending on your friends, I don't know your friends, but uh, you would probably pick up the phone and you would send a text message that would say very simply, I'm sorry, why? (laughs) Why? Because you would say, Tom, Tom, I'm not going to stand up. I mean, am am I part of a rally? Am I going to be a fun? I don't mind doing it. You'll help your friend as long as you know what? As 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 long as you know the profit, right? As long as you know what does it, well... 
What does it profit a man? I don't mind helping others or if it's a bake sale, whatever. But i got to know why. Why? Because you would not waste your Tuesday afternoon without knowing what profit you get from it. And yet some people will waste their whole life not knowing what profit. Give me a break. You won't waste your Tuesday afternoon? Philosophy professor's going, then let's examine our life a little bit. See? And let's really press and let's not be satisfied with the answers that we're being offered. Here are the main answers we're being offered today. If you don't... Okay, so the Constitution of our country says that Congress shall establish no law that establishes a religion. In other words, it's not supposed to favor or make this the state religion. I believe that right now in 2015, we are in direct violation of our own Constitution because there is very much a state religion that has been established, it is forcefully executed, and it is secular humanism. And it's being favored. I'm not saying it has to go away forever and be banished and everybody who believes it put in a dungeon. I'm saying let's not, let's not make that the state religion. I know it's the state religion because going to a school right now and try to push back against secular humanism and with all the force of the state, they will show you they are very much enforcing this state religion. Hashtag end rant. The point is, uh, with this, humanism is exactly the thing that this guy's coming after. So, 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 so how do people answer this question? Okay, let, let's get back to it. What is it worth? What does a man profit? What, you know, what is it? What's the point of everything? It, you know, without God, it's meaningless. A, a secular humanist would say this. <clears throat> and this, I think, is probably the most popular answer. Well, the point of everything, Tom, I don't need God in my life, and I don't need all that stuff you believe about the Bible. Uh, my life is going to be lived to make the world a better place. See, That sounds so good on the surface. And it's the exact thinking that Ecclesiastes 1 puts right in its crosshairs and with like 50 caliber precision just destroys. That's his point. Really, you're going to make a lasting difference? Oh, you're going to make a lasting difference? Really? You're going to, I'm sorry, go back. You're going to make the world a better, you came from atheistic chemical nonsense that just shattered together. You came, your origin is nothing but meaningless. And when you die, they're going to put you in the cold, cold earth and your body's going to disintegrate. You came from nothingness, you're going to end in the abyss. And along the way, you want to work for better human practices. And I get called naive as a Christian. Who's naive? You've got to be kidding me. You're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic by saying, oh, man, well, we really need to make a difference. What difference have you made? You're like building sandcastles. You know, you ever meet somebody that's like, what do you do for a living? I study sandcastles that were created 50 years ago. I have a very easy job. I have not found one. They don't exist. Right? You're building sandcastles right next to the shore if you think, I'm going to make a lasting difference. Here's what he's saying. Really? This is the Ecclesiastes 1 is going, really? Really? A generation comes and a generation goes. The earth remains forever. Right? What about verse 11? There's no remembrance of those who came before. Those who come after them, there'll be no remembrance by those who follow them. Let me ask you a question. Tell me about, I won't ask you about your great-grandparent. Because the great-grandparent, right, you had eight of them. Eight great-grandparents. Some of you are like doing the math on that. I never thought about that. I never thought about that. Right? You know why you never thought about them? You don't know them. But just in case you do, tell me about one of your 16 great-great-grandparents. Number one, you have 16 of them. Can anybody in here tell me in depth about one or two of them, right? If you raise your hand, you're the exception that proves the rule. You had 16 of them, and they're really important in your life. They're how you got here. If you don't have any one of those 16, if one sixteenth of your great-grandparents didn't, you know, make it, uh, you're not here. You see how important they are? You don't know them. You know why? Ecclesiastes 1.11, right? And you know what they said at every one of their funerals? At every one of their funerals, you know what they said? She left the world a better place. She made a difference. He left the world a better place. 
To which everybody goes, I, I, I guess they did. I have no idea. Really? You're going to find utter meaning. You're going to find ultimate meaning in the world by just making the world a better place. Just... He says, you're being naive. He's cutting through the nonsense. That's what you need. You need somebody with some common sense. And apparently it takes divine wisdom to get this common sense. And that's what he's saying. All right, what about you? Who's going to remember you in 40 years? Well, I hope my kids. I do too. I do too. Who's going to remember you in 140 years? How about 140 years? I'll tell you, if you want to get remembered in 140 years, there's only one thing you can do. You've got to donate a ton of money to a hospital, and they will name a wing after you. The Joe Lecce pasta wing. Hey, right? eat what you want, baby. Yeah, right? Now, here's the thing, though. You know what will happen? 140 years later, what do they do? Somebody else gives a little bit more money, and they go, well, I, nobody really remembers Joe anymore. Who is Joe Lecce? Yeah, you know what? You're right. You're right. The James Lecce wing of healthy, <laughs> healthy eating and, you know, right? right? Wait, well, don't remember. How, you want to be remembered 400 years from now? This, this, just 400 years. That's not that long ago. You better, you better be the president of a really important country. If, and if for 4,000 years, you could literally conquer the world. And they will just sort of infer your existence from archaeological data. See? He's saying, stop, stop. The, 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 the secular humanism, it, if, if all there is is no God, no creator, no heaven, and if everything is under the sun, if this is all there is, then nothing has any meaning. And a lot of people actually get that, and this next one I respect. I'm just going to give you two. Humanism, there's kind of hyperhumanism with his existentialism. I'm talking about Camus and Sartre, and those, those guys at least were like, you know what? They would, I respect them because at least they would say, you know what? You're right. There is no meaning. And in the face of all this meaninglessness, I will still have meaning. I will live live as if there's meaning and that sounds really good and if you read those dudes what you what they fail to notice is if everything has derived from something that's utterly meaningless and your thoughts have derived from this world right if your thoughts come from a world that's meaningless then your own thoughts are what meaningless and it becomes a, anyway uh so some people go you know what you're right man tom this is blowing my mind the meaning of life cannot be found in just helping others it can't be found under the sun that means if i'm coming from nothing and i'm gonna i'm gonna go to the cold cold earth and that's it and nothing i'm just i'm in the abyss and it's all over for me i'm going to a jimmy buffett concert right, <laughs> right? and that's the next one that's the next it's it's hedonism and at least this is honest it, it, it is a terrible thing when you think about eternity so i'm just gonna lay on a beach somewhere right and i'm gonna uh, eat and i'm gonna drink and I'm going to be merry. Why? Because I, it's too much to think about. And that's hedonism. He's saying if you fill your life up with pleasures, you know what you're trying to do? You're trying to distract yourself. That's a part of why summer blockbusters are so important. We need that escape every summer. It's like, man, how crazy is our world that we have to escape all the time? Why? Because it's too much to think about all this stuff. And so you know what? I can't believe in that. I'm just going to, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry because it's all... Uh, utter meaninglessness. This is, the, uh, this is the ostrich approach to life, right? Legend has it that when the wolf comes, what does the ostrich do? <laughs> Head in the sand. Whew. Safe from danger down here. No danger down here, right? Meanwhile, the wolf is like, you, you, you realize I'm still here. I'm about to eat you. All good down here. Can't see a wolf down here. Good to be the ostrich. That's hedonism, okay? That's hedonism. That, that hedonism is continuing to distract yourself. Here's the problem with hedonism. Everything. 
But to me, the most pointed is, if you're saying, well, I'm just going to distract myself, eat, drink, and be merry, right? I, you, I literally, I mean, you may think I'm kidding. I see this. Hey, let's talk about the gospel. Live and let live. Don't be bad to people. Be cool. Let's, you know, let's talk about something else, right? Uh, that really is the way people live. They don't think of themselves as following Sartre or Camus or, oh, I didn't think about myself. I'm a functional, atheistic, existentialist. What they say is, I'm just here to make the world a better place. They don't trace this stuff back, that, right? Fine. But they need to know that this is what they're doing. Hedonism, the same thing. Some of us, well, you know, I just, it's too much. Thing. Here's the problem with hedonism. Say you do get some pleasure. Say you do actually occasionally get some pleasure in your life. Because that's hedonism, search for pleasure as meaning. If you do get pleasure, here's what's so sickening you got to realize that even that good pleasure is going to end. And it almost taints the pleasure knowing that it's not going to lead to ultimate fulfillment, doesn't it? Here's my example. Death row convict is offered a delicious last meal. I mean, yeah, there's pleasure in good food, but it's something taints that knowing that it's all going to be over, right? It almost, it's almost like you can't enjoy that pleasure knowing that all there is is what's under the sun, it's meaningless. So, what does all this mean? Let's wrap up. It means you can't do the one thing that everybody seems to want to do. You can't do the one thing, and that's have it both ways. You can't say, there will be meaning in my life, and I don't need God or anything beyond the sun. You can't have that. You're either going to be sold out for God or everything I believe is hopeless and meaningless. That's what Ecclesiastes does with penetrating insight like a surgeon cutting through the nonsense. And what he's saying is you have to find the meaning of life. In, uh, remember I told you earlier that Ecclesiastes should be the front of the book because it's the questions. The rest of the Bible provides the answers. You could turn to a lot of spots in the Bibles, but let's get to some hope here at the end. I, I got to thinking about this sermon, the way I kind of built it, and now here we are at the end of the sermon, and I thought, man, everything's meaningless, and as you're just pounding away at all the things you think are meaningful, and it's just meaningless. If all there is is life under the sun, meaningless, and I'm like, no one's going to come back next week. <laughs> I'm just sort of imagining everybody kind of in your home, there's soda cans all over, you're covered in Doritos crumbs, it's meaningless. <laughs> Pastor, Tom's, burp. Pastor Tom says it's all meaningless, why try, crush, throw, right? Right? Don't make your bed, kids. I went to church, learned something. Right? Uh, so, so we kind of got to bring it to some hope here. <clears throat> and here it is. So you want to know what a man gains? Ecclesiastes is asking these mega questions. What he's asking in New Testament terms, and the Greek philosophers love to talk about, was the logos, the logos. That what they were asking was, what's the rationale? What's the ordering principle? What's the thing that human... Basically, they realized, Greek philosophers realized, if we can figure out what a human is made for, we can answer all, all sorts of questions. Now we know what's good, right? Now we know what good is fulfilling the purpose, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it'd be like, what is the logos? If I came to your house and you were like, man, iPhone 6 is terrible. I hate the iPhone 6. Why? The iPhone 6 is awful. Why? Every time I use it, screen shatters. Every time I use it, my screen just shatters. Bro, what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, I'll show you. And you proceed to hammer a nail with your iPhone 6, right? <clears throat> Look, it's a piece of junk, right? I would say, <laughs> and you want me to stand on a corner Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> it's a different friend, different friend, different friend. I'd say, bro, I think you've misunderstood the logos of your iPhone 6, right? What is the point of it? It's not to 
hammer a nail, it's to waste all your time. It's a different, it's a different, different telos. There's different logos. So what's the logos of a human being? And what, what's the lo- what is the meaning? And there's many places you could go. I go to John 1. In the beginning was the logos. We translate it capital word, but what he's saying is we found it. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He's talking about Jesus because in verse 14 he says the word became flesh and took up residence among us. What John is saying is here's meaning. Meaning is not some abstract concept like existentialism. Meaning is found in a person, in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So here it is. This is the takeaway. Uh, The whole book of Ecclesiastes is to get you to see that if all there is is life under the sun, we are greatly to be pitied and it's meaningless. Keep your eyes under the sun on the created world and just assume there's no God and it's meaningless. Why did he do all that? It'll do two things. It'll do two things. One is bad. One is good. If you get this, that everything under the sun Utter meaningless, it will either drive you to despair. That's the bad thing. That's the soda cans everywhere, Doritos, and never going back. Or it will do what it's supposed to do. It will drive you to look for something beyond the sun. Someone behind the sun. The one older than the sun. The maker of the sun and the moon and the stars and all that is. Ecclesiastes is meant to drive you to the point where you say, there's got to be something more. Why? Because there is. And as Christians, you and I know that life is not meaningless because we're not living for what's under the sun. We're living for what's beyond the sun. And if that's true, that means everything is shot through with meaning. Utter meaninglessness or shot through with glory. Earth is crammed with heaven. You're going to be on your commute. You're going to take the Long Island Railroad. You're going to find yourself sitting next to somebody on Wednesday morning, and they're going to ask you about your life, and you're going to start talking. You mentioned church, and one thing leads to another. You share your faith with them. You know how, you know, you know how what an eternal, if, you, if you're living for life beyond the sun, that means four billion years from now, you might be with that person in front of the throne of glory, looking at each other. I know you. Yeah, it's been a while. Four billion years. Uh, you look great, by the way. These glorified bodies are the jam. I know, I know. Well, anyway, what are you doing here? Well, I just wanted to say, hey, you know, you had that conversation. It may not have meant much to you, but because of that conversation, it's so funny. My brother-in-law, the very next week, mentioned something else. Then I went to this church. Then I started reading all these books by C.S. Lewis. The next thing you know, man, well, I gave my life to Jesus and blah, 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 four billion years. Here we are, right? Your life is shot through with meaning. Even uh, making even doing laundry and doing housework, if, listen, if all there is is life under the sun, then it, it really is, I'm not kidding, it's utter meaninglessness. What does it matter? We're all going in the grave anyway. Our whole life is just rearranging things from one place to another, reading real simple, to, okay, rearrange, right? That's it. But if you're living for life beyond the sun, then you realize I am a being who was made in the image of God, and God brings order out of chaos. And there's a kind of worship moment. I'm, I'm I'm putting order out of chaos in the way I'm arranging this house. I'm doing it for the glory of God. And not just because it's a chore, but this can be shot through with meaning and with glory. Earth can be crammed with heaven for the Christian. Why? Because there's life beyond the sun. So this, he's going to go 12 rounds with this. There's 12 chapters. So in two weeks, I'll be back after Andy comes next week and i mean it's round two let's let's try this out does this provide meaning does this provide meaning and over and over i'm just telling you now he's going to come back to under the sun you're not going to find what you're looking for because what you're looking for can only be found beyond the sun so if you're here today and you're a seeker the the message is clear keep seeking you need to keep seeking kohelet keep questing 
And do not be satisfied with stuff that's nonsense. Don't be satisfied with anything less. And the encouragement is that what you're seeking is also seeking you. He's alive and he's looking. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray we would not be satisfied with anything under the sun. I pray we would not be satisfied with really bad answers to the questions of meaning and existence. And I pray the word of God would cut through the nonsense in a way that is tender, loving, perhaps painful, to think new thoughts and to think in new directions. But that anyone who's seeking, in our families and our friends and our loved ones, anyone who's seeking, will continue to seek, knowing that they will find. And the one that they're seeking is looking for them. Thank you, Lord, that we live for lives that are beyond the sun and beyond this earth toward eternity with you. I pray this week would be shot through with meaning in big things and mundane things that we would be rock solid in our meaning coming from you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.